Yes, welcome to For and Against, where we take a look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. My name is Paul Roach, and we're joined by some very good friends and colleagues, namely David Gill. G'day, Bear. G'day, Roachie. Uh, Simon Johnson. Hello to you, Jono. 2022, Roachie. It's great to be back. Oh, it sure is. And Stephen Riley. G'day, Riles. Coming in from Melbourne once again. It's really interesting just how many meetings I'm having, and it's already March, and I'm still saying Happy New Year. <laughs> it's a bit like that, isn't it? Um, now, guys, we, we can't let this moment pass without acknowledging warning. Now, here at For and Against, we stick to action off the field. And wow, did Warney give us some material over the years. And and the thing about Warney is that everybody seems to have a story about Warney. So before we get into the show proper, uh, I think it's, it'd be a good idea to add our, ours to the to the record. Jono, you, you got sure, a Warney story? Sure, Rochi. Um, I mean, it's good to see you're, you're paying the appropriate respects to the great man. Mm. In all seriousness, I found it a strangely emotional time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as much as we all used to love to laugh at Warney's excesses, he was an absolute genuine superstar. You know, one of the top five wisdom cricketers ever. I think we're all pretty lucky and privileged to watch Warney in his pomp. Um, I, I did bizarrely find it quite moving watching quite a few of the tributes for him because, I mean, they bring back so many vivid on-field memories when we're all watching sport so religiously in those years. Um, but for me, as far as my story, I'm going to miss his Instagram profile <laughs> updates. Um, you know, I was, a, as you know, an avid follower of all of his social media content. There was never a dull moment with Warney. He gave you a real insight into his life uh, and his personality. Um, and it sort of showed a bit more about who he was. He loved his kids. He loved traveling the world to commentate. He seriously loved his golf. So I empathize with him there. And I reckon he got more out of his 52 years than most of us will get out of double or triple of that. Indeed, Gilly. Pretty similar, actually. He was obviously a genius on the field, but the thing that was always kind of unique about him was that he was so relatable to everybody because mm. of his his foibles. And mm. there were so many through the years. There was the ill-fated uh, Nicorette contract. Mm. Um, there was the advanced hair journey, which was which is very entertaining. And then I, I was talking to a friend at work, and he mentioned that his cousin went on a date with Warnie oh. in the early nineties, in his early superstar years. Oh. So I asked, how, you know, how did the date go? And well, the date lasted half an hour. Uh, he had a very bad haircut, apparently. He was very loud. He was smoking excessively. He picked her up in a sports car and he drove so fast that after half an hour, she said, You know what, Shane? Drop me off at the next corner. <laughs> and that was the end of the date. Oh, poor Warney. He can't even defend himself. Oh, uh... uh, Roz, what about yourself? I don't think I can compete with that, but I'll give it my best shot. So uh, it turns out, and I went and looked up the dates, it turns out I was in Mumbai in India back in 1998, sometime between Feb 24 and 26. I know this because I went and looked it up on uh, on ESPN Crick Info because that's where Australia was playing the, the, the local Mumbai team. And I was working nearby and I just happened to get an invite to a Foster's Remember Foster's? Mm. A Foster's functioned event uh, one night. It was after day one or two. Anyway, um, look, I, I do remember in the, the end of the match, Mumbai won by 10 wickets. So Australia wasn't having the best time on the field, but Foster's threw a party for them at the end of a day's play anyway. And so I rolled along. I'm cricket tragic. You know, I was uh, you know quite excited. Met a few of the players, had a couple of chats. Didn't get a chance to talk to... Uh, to our mate Shane Warne, because he was dancing very, very closely with Miss India all night long. <laughs> of course he was. 
Oh, brilliant! Uh, look, I've I've um, I was at the back of the SCG uh, uh, members area a, a number of summers ago at a, at a cricket match. It was during the day, and I, I was with I forget who I was with. Might have been one of you guys. And the table adjacent, and this is just in the grass out the back, very relaxed. Were a couple of couple of ladies, sort of you know not not young ladies. One of whom was really sort of dressed up for the nines, had really sort of you know maximised everything, got the hair going, all that sort of stuff. So I was sort of loosely aware of, of these two, and then the the this the one I've just described um, after about ten minutes hops up and runs straight over across you know over there about twenty meters away, and because Shane Warne has appeared, so he's, this is his commentary days. He's come up sort of out the media door and clearly has arranged to meet this lady, and you know so it's it's a known rendezvous out in full in full public right. So there's a bit of a crowd of people around them because of Warney. And Wani just stood still and talked to her, and she was tossing her hair and flicking her yeah. head back and shifting from one foot to the other. And Wani was just there. You could see the Cheshire cat grin on his face. And, like, he obviously knew her, right? Hadn't known her for – but, yeah, he was running that show. Wani in action. she was sticking her hand up for selection, and he was just – Wow. That was that was, that was Wani. He, got, he that, got the most out of life. No wonder he got into trouble. That's yeah. what I was thinking as I watched that. No wonder this guy – Got yep. himself into trouble. Anyway, R.I.P. Warney, and indeed Ron Marsh. It's unfortunate that an Aussie legend and a great servant of cricket such as Rod, has, his passing has been somewhat overshadowed. But um, rest in peace uh, to those two. Now, ahead in the show, sanctions. As the Western world levies economic sanctions on Russia, sports organisations and athletes are taking their own measures to protest the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How useful a deterrent are they? Well, we'll talk to Professor Tim Harcourt from the University of Technology in Sydney, who's written extensively on the subject. The Formula One circus is about to start up again for 2022, faced with the impossible task of outdoing the drama of last year's season. We take a look back and look forward at the challenges that sport faces, and in the shootout, we'll look at golf, Brand Beckham, and, if time permits, speed skydiving. And our special It's Not Sport Will We Like It segment. Uh, and while in red card, yellow card, as always, we'll bring back into the spotlight the indiscretions at Sporting types wished we'd forgotten about. Don't forget we're on the socials at Twitter at for and against underscore Insta for dot and dot against. And I don't think there's actually any point in giving it the email address because we don't really get a lot of traffic on that, to be honest with Hotmail, you. Hotmail, yeah. It's yeah. great, though. I, I just want to hear you say it, though. For it's and against at hotmail.com. I'm going to send you an email, Richard. You know the problem with that, Paul, the reason you don't get any is because with Hotmail, you have to print it out to read it. <laughs> that on a dot matrix printer. <laughs> Anyway, uh, enough of that. Let's talk sport and geopolitics. With Russia invading Ukraine recently, the world has hoped to avoid a larger-scale conflict by invoking the use of sanctions against Russia. While these are predominantly economic, sports bodies and even athletes themselves have also leveraged what power they may have in acts of solidarity with Ukraine, and there's quite the parade of sport developing a spine, guys, isn't there? There's a few interesting examples kicking around of sports organisations that have taken action. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, the two most prominent amongst them are FIFA and the IOC, who for so long have uh, carried this argument of the separation of sport and politics at all costs, but uh, things have changed. Mm. Uh, a bit of Formula One too. They've they've ripped off the the Grand Prix. Uh, John, anything? Any other examples? Yeah, no. I saw St. Petersburgers lost the Champions League hosting rights. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's been phenomenal how quickly it's happened, hasn't it? Over mm. the past week or two. Riles, any standouts for you? Where the sports uh, sports world has reacted to to this? More the number of countries. Uh, I think it's. I think the number last I looked was up to 35, 36, 37 countries have sanctioned, said they're not going to play any sport with uh, Russia or Belarus. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite unprecedented on a number of fronts. So joining us now to explore the power or otherwise of sports sanctions is Professor Tim Harcourt, the Chief Economist with the Institute for Public Policy and Governance at the University of Technology in Sydney. Uh, Tim, welcome to the show. Good to be on the panel, a panel beater at last. <laughs> hey, Tim, you recently wrote a compelling article for the Lowe Institute on the sanctioning of Russia generally, but you included a paragraph about the reaction of the sports community. So tell me, why do you think it was important enough to talk about sport in a discussion that wasn't and is otherwise fairly rich in economic and political ideas? Well, you know, that old adage that sport and politics are, are separate. Well, sport is politics and sport is business and sport is power and influence. And when you think about uh, Gazprom, you know, the big Russian um, conglomerate for gas, they've been you know, sponsoring the Champions League and several German clubs as well as Russian clubs. And uh, uh, as mentioned, you know, losing the Champions League final in St. Petersburg, moving it to Paris, that's that's a, that's a pretty big deal. So I think uh, when people have san- been sanctioning Russian oligarchs and people of influence who use sport for their influence, uh, Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea, for instance, it becomes part of the economic and politics story. And uh, I've been amazed to what extent this has been led by athletes and sports people themselves rather than governments or, you know, uh, administrative bodies imposing it on athletes from above. Tim, I'm interested um, in in your thoughts about the effectiveness of sports-related sanctions. Because I guess when we think about sanctions, you're usually thinking about the political side of things or the economic side of things or the military side of things. I grew up in South Africa in the 70s and 80s, and I know that there were lots of sanctions against South Africa during that time, but the ones that bit really hard from a mental and psychological perspective were the sporting sanctions. Do you think it'll play out in a similar way for Russia? Yes, yeah, South Africa is quite unique, wasn't it? Uh, I worked in South Africa for Kosatu when I was with the trade union. So I worked in South Africa right when um, uh, they got the Rugby World Cup there, when Mandela put on the Springbok shirt and all that, gave the, gave the cup to Francis Pinar. So quite a big deal. I think um, with South Africa, uh, as, as you know, growing up there, um, sport was very, very important to the, you know, to the, to the Afrikaners and the white minority. Uh, so it was quite specific. I think with Russia, it's a little bit different. I mean, Putin, uh, President Putin put a lot of uh, emphasis on getting the Sochi uh, Winter Olympics. I think he spent about $50 billion on that, blew mm. out the budget. And also the World Cup in soccer, in football. I mean, they, uh, you know, they outflanked the Brits who used Prince William and David Beckham and David Cameron to try and get it. Us and the... Uh, North Americans to get it. And then when uh, FIFA and the Swiss authorities had to look at the hard drives, they'd all been incinerated uh, by the Russians, which is quite appropriate. So I think prestige is very important. And Putin said he grew up with the Moscow Olympics. So I think right across the population, sport's quite popular. I think in South Africa, they were able to target a a certain proportion of the population who was holding up a power at the time. And so that's, I think, why the sports sanctions did eventually work. Having said that, South Africa had a damn good cricket and rugby team. I think they were kept out for other reasons. I mean, they Pollock <laughs> and Barry Richards. And uh, uh, and when they came in, gee, for a team, particularly in cricket, that hadn't been playing internationally for 30 years, they were pretty competitive as soon as they came in. So uh, we, you know, it was really interesting to see how, how good South Africa was. Tim, it's interesting, I, I think, to look at how effective these sanctions are and perhaps by comparing them to some of the sanctions that were imposed on Russia in recent times, 
um, not obviously in respect of Ukraine, but more in relation to their um, drugs uh, issues, which they had um, over the past couple of years. And I would have described those as more tokenistic sanctions, um, because in that situation, you still had Russian athletes compete, competing at Olympics, but it was under that crazy, what was it, the ROC or the Russian Olympic mm. Committee banner. I mean, they, they... Yeah, the rocks. The rocks, yeah. I mean, that didn't seem to bite, but these sanctions, they do seem far more serious. Would would you agree that, you know, this is taking things to a completely new and more effective level? Yeah, no, you're quite right. They were sort of Clayton sanctions before, weren't they? And um, it was interesting, FIFA, you know, the, the soccer people, they were trying to allow Russia to compete as the Russian Football Union, the RFU. And uh, there was a lot of pushback saying, uh-uh. You're not doing the sort of Clayton sanctions, the ROC, RFU. You've got to ban them and Belarus. So I think you're right. They've really hit hard. And also, you know, they've gone after the oligarchs. Uh, you know, the Chelsea story keeps changing where they're going to suspend, uh, you know, sales of season tickets. They're going to suspend the sale of Chelsea. Roman Abramovich tried to um, put Chelsea in the hands of the charity temporarily, and he offered to mediate himself the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Uh, I don't know how... <laughs> Who was going to go with that? But uh, then he sort of buckled to the inevitable. So I think you're right. I think these sanctions are are pretty serious. And I've been quite struck by the number of Ukrainian athletes, you know, the tennis players, the wrestlers, the boxers, who are giving up their very lucrative professional careers to go and uh, pick up a gun and fight for their country. It's quite uh, it's quite remarkable. It is, isn't it? The uh, the, the the Klitschko brothers are, are saying "f you" themselves to. Uh... Yes. To, to, to Russia, yeah. Tim, I, I just want to go a slightly different way just for a second. Why do you think the world's banded together to sanction Russia in sport, but they haven't gone and sanctioned a whole lot of other countries? I mean, there's plenty to choose from. You know, on any given day, you might want to sanction China, Saudi Arabia, you know, possibly the US uh, for you know at various times. Why, why Russia? Why, why now uh, compared to some other uh, conflicts going on around the world? It's a really good question, isn't it? Because we, we've even had trade sanctions, as we mentioned before, against South Africa. That in the end, it was the you know capital strike of Barclays Bank that did them. They got around the trade sanctions. There's been a bit on Burma. Uh, you know, there's been a, a few here and there, but not 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 like this. And um, it could be uh, the fact that Putin's managed to do what no one's managed to do. He's Europe is united. I mean. It is true that the UK and Poland were quick out of the blocks and Germany took a while, but once Germany did it, yeah, Germany, Europe's united. Even the Swiss, you know, Swiss are not in the European Union. The Swiss did business with the Nazis in World War II while pretending to be neutral. They're on board. Uh, And then you get, uh, you know, a lot of the the developing countries on on board. It's really only Russia's very close allies, Belarus and Myanmar and, and North Korea, that haven't haven't jumped in jumped in in a big way. So, yeah, it's extraordinary the number of countries, and it just seems that um, you know the attack on Ukraine has been uh, you know, quite stark, uh, and it's not not really an internal matter like, uh, for instance, you know there might be an issue in China with Hong Kong or, or, or the Uyghurs, but but this is going over a border with tanks. It's quite stark. Mm. Tim, uh, you made a you made a comment only a couple of minutes ago that these that the actions of sporting bodies and indeed individual athletes are are driven by themselves. Traditionally, historically, I suppose we've seen well the the sporting sanctions that I can think of are driven by governments, and you know the the Moscow Olympics, for example, um, and 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 the apartheid which we've talked about. 
so therefore, the actions that we're seeing now, are driven by individual athletes, individual sporting bodies, are they any less effective because they're not government sanctioned, or a government's going, oh, good, that's a lever we don't actually have to pull after all, or is it sort of a, is this sort of a red herring? Oh no, I think you're right. I think it is a bit different because I remember Malcolm Fraser was prime minister, and he was having to ring up athletes and tell them to boycott you know, Moscow when they invaded Afghanistan, and. I think I think some of the athletes, I think the hockey team went. I think some of the teams actually decided to go. Mm. Um, well, this one, it's almost individuals making these decisions. It's a bit like um, you know these companies like um, Apple and Nike deciding, oh, we're going to boycott Russia, and suddenly the poor Boris and Natasha can't get on the Moscow subway because they usually use their Apple phone or, or something like that. So it, it's a lot of social media grassroots activism. And private companies making the decision, um, indeed, you know, the, the, the super funds pulling out of Russia. You know, a lot of it's individual companies doing it. And athletes probably see themselves in the same boat and um, they've got the power to, to do it. Yeah, you know, at one stage, whenever you heard about sporting boycotts, they'd say, well, it's a bit rough on the athletes, you know, but they've sort of been doing it first. So you don't have to put that sort of pressure on them. It's almost like a cancel culture, right, isn't it? It's almost cancel culture. You, you've had Coke and Starbucks and McDonald's. All jump on because you know that they've, they've realized there's this driving force of opinion and they can't afford to be associated with it. Russia, Russia's been cancelled, <laughs> yeah. It is, um, it, it's interesting though, because I think we've seen ESG become a, a really big thing in the corporate world in the last five years. And we were asking the question earlier, why are the sporting bodies moving now? And I feel like, and interested in your opinion, but I feel like one of the reasons is that all of their major sponsors have imposed sanctions, the types of sanctions you were just describing. And if you look at the the list of major sponsors for the IOC or FIFA, you're talking about companies like Visa, you're talking about Coca-Cola, Amatil. So when their major sponsors start imposing sanctions on Russia, then it seems like the sporting bodies, irrespective of what they may actually want to do, they almost don't have a choice. Do you think that's part of it? Mm. Well, I think if you've got the athletes and you've got the sponsors putting the pressure on yeah, you're in real, you're in real strife. Because, I mean, let's face it. I mean, FIFA's uh, cozied up to all sorts of dictators in the world throughout their existence, and uh, you know, uh, in a lot of the, the the books by you know David Gold Goldblatt on the history of soccer, there's always that story. Uh, but it sounds like now that the uh, you know they've they've been told by sponsors and they've been told by athletes and they've been told by broadcasters is how you got to do it, and they've sort of fallen into line. Whilst I, with the Moscow Olympics, I think it was the the Prime Minister telling the Australian Olympic Committee they've got to do this rather than you know rather than the other the other way around. But but Stephen raises a good point about this cancel culture. So we've got a case here of Russia invading Ukraine. Zelensky's a hero. You know it's all pretty cut and dried. Tanks going over the border. But could this be done in other international disputes? You know with trade sanctions or foreign policy distinctions? I mean. No one really cared about Hong Kong too much, did they? I remember the um, the NBA took a big stance on Black Lives Matters, which they should, and then um, one of the coaches had a free Hong Kong banner or something, and uh, he got in real strife for it, you know. Mm. Uh, so so it's interesting to what extent. Is this an isolated case where, you know, Putin's the new Hitler and it's all pretty obvious, or could there be shades of grey where people will go after all sorts of countries on this basis because they've seen such a, an avalanche of activity. You know, um, my grandfather was um, sort of sports related. My grandfather was training to be a rabbi, but he wanted to be a Bondi lifesaver. 
because he was an atheist, and you don't get too many atheist rabbis around. <laughs> <laughs> he changed our family name from Harkovitz to Harcourt, uh, so he could get in the club because you couldn't. That wasn't integrated in those days. So he used to say, well, "I went from the Goldbergs to the Icebergs," and he used to make this joke <laughs> to me: wouldn't the, "Wouldn't the world be safer with a Jewish comedian running the world?" And I thought. Well, Zelensky's doing it, isn't he? It's, it's like coming true. This guy who was a comedian on TV is now the president and he's got moral clarity and um, the whole world's getting behind him in, a, in an incredible way. Hard to see that he's a, uh, a Nazi, as uh, Vladimir seems to suggest. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Amazing. I think there's, there's a quick watch this space comment to make, Tim, just in relation to particularly the Football Union of Russia or, or FUR, as I found out it was called. Mm. FUR or FO? <laughs> FO. Oh, Who knows? Yeah, FUR. Go with FUR. Um, so it's actually filed an appeal to the Court of Arbitration of Sport for a stay of execution of its ban from the World Cup. And it's it's an urgent application because Russia is actually down to play a 2022 qualifier against Poland mm-hmm. on March 24. Yes. Can mm-hmm. you imagine? So Good it raises, there. raises a number of questions in my head. I mean, Russia v. Poland, the, there's going to be some ill will there. Also, which lawyers are going to be acting for the the, F- the Football Federation of Russia, given that pretty much every law firm has bailed out of acting for yeah, Russians? So, you know, this is this is fascinating. I think we'll have to um, get you back in a month or so, Tim, and and talk more about this. <laughs> see, see how the how the appeal goes. There, w- there was a case when um, the USSR, I think, played Chile in a qualifier for the World Cup, and Chile had been uh, banned or they withdrew because of Pinochet, and so the USSR went to a stadium in Moscow and there was no opponent. So they just started the game and kicked the ball on <laughs> the net. Right. And that was it. That's mm. right. So, mm. so don't know that Poland Russia will look like that. So yeah, no, they're, they're, it's interesting. And well, lawyers always say you got to you got to represent your client no matter how odious they are. So uh, mm, that, interesting that, to see who's going to take that on. Case. That'll be a stretch of that. I'd pull, I'd pull a hammy, you know, <laughs> if I got that brief. Yeah, the Tommy camp- Cochran, I think. To Tommy it. Cochran, I think he's dead, but he'd, he'd be up for it. <laughs> he'd be up for it. He would be. <laughs> hey Tim, I'm just wondering about when the the, the next country's going to get cancelled. Um, and I don't mean to make light of it. it, it if it's we're looking point, at, the, at, at the Qatar World Cup. Mm. You know, is this an event that is running into a Twitter storm, a cancel storm? I mean, can you see this this really backlashing against that that whole competition? It's interesting, wasn't it? Because I mean, uh, the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions pointed out that you know Bangladeshi workers are sent up, you know, to scale those heights in fifty degrees with no compo or. Uh, superannuation or anything like that. So that's that's a real that's been a real issue over Qatar. Qatar's sort of been in the good books lately, though. Um, Qatar was being boycotted by the rest of the Middle East. When I did the Airport Economist uh, Middle East show, I could go to the UAE, but I couldn't couldn't go to Qatar. You couldn't cross over there. Hmm. But now Qatar has made friends with Israel, and so is the UAE, and so is Morocco. Now Qatar's sort of the flavour of the month. Plus. Europe's going to get their gas from Qatar. So when the Russians cut them off, Qatar is the flavour of the month. So I think the animosity towards Russia will um, will sort of overtake the detestation people have got for, have got for you know, wow, the Qatar, yeah. Qataris. So there you go. So Qataris will be pretty well, happy that Russia's come along and been worse than them. Well, we'll have a test, won't we? We'll see if the old school of the politics... Setting the 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 boycotts or Twitter drive the the, the World Cup. Uh, it's the uh, the shifting sands of global politics. It's all fascinating stuff. A little bit of sport inserted 
as well. Uh, Tim, thanks very much for joining us on For and Against. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Professor Tim Harcourt joining us there, the Chief Economist with the Institute for Public Policy at UTS and also the man behind Footynomics, the website that delves into the economics of Australian footy codes. So Footynomics, have a squiz at that. So have you caught your breath after the conclusion of the 2021 Formula One season yet? The most controversial ending to any sporting championship anywhere, ever. And I say that without a hint of exaggeration. Jono, I think even you heard about it, didn't you? Sorry, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was some, yeah. You know, I did hear a bit about it. Sure. That's it, isn't Ham- it? Hamilton, he lost, didn't he, in the last race? Correct. Something like that. Well done. Yeah. Well done. Yep. Steve-O, I know you would have heard about it. What did you make of it all? I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to Formula One. I uh, personally have been uh, winning an argument with yourself, Paul, for about 30 years that Formula One is no longer a sport. It's a procession. It's a little bit of a parade of cars with uh, really yeah, well-plastered brands all over them. Just going, doing laps and laps and laps. It's boring, boring, you boring. haven't been winning that, just for the record, but do go on. <laughs> well, last year, I had to concede a few times because a few of the races got interesting and the final race got sensationally interesting. For those people who weren't watching, basically Lewis Hamilton was streaking away at the championship. There was a crash on the track. And uh, the um, uh, the race director, the race referee, effectively, Michael Massey, made a call to um, interpret the rules in such a way that uh, Verstappen, uh, Max Verstappen, ended up right behind Lewis Hamilton on better tyres with a one-lap race off. And uh, Max Verstappen overtook him on the title. It was very exciting. Good summary. It was. The most uh, controversial, but obviously the most entertaining um finish to a Formula One season ever. But it has, amongst the aficionados, such as yourself, Roach, I don't quite put myself in that category, but spoken to a few Formula One aficionados, and there are people who are concerned about the direction that the sport is going. Because, yes, you could say it's been boring for, for 20 years, but it's also, you can't argue that it is the pinnacle of motorsport mm-hmm. and has been for as long as anybody can remember. And one of the reasons for that is that it's about one thing, and that's getting your car to go as fast as possible. And if your car happens to be 10 seconds a lap faster than the next best car, so be it, because it's all Mm. about excellence and it's a very pure sport Mm. in that way. Mm -hmm. And the new owners are maybe messing with that. Maybe the Netflix show, which has been so great for the popularity of the sport, maybe it's starting to mess with the soul of Formula One. So there are people asking questions around, in the long run, could this be the beginning of the end for what we know as Formula One. I think we've got to remember that the new owners, as you put it, Liberty Media, who who bought into Formula One in 2018, I think it was, they own the commercial rights to the sport. So the FIA, the Fédération Internationale de Automobile, or something to that effect, they still make the rules. Um, so they, they're still the governing body of the sport. Liberty owns the commercial rights. And no doubt they'll have some sort of influence on how everything goes. But um, So are you saying that the new regs that come into play this year are the step backwards or has something already happened that's the step backwards? Well, I think there were concerns. And, and Michael Mazzi, the, the race director, is, uh, he's been the fall guy in this, but that it was manufactured and it was almost mm. NASCAR style where you bring all the cars back together at the end of every race so that you have a you know an, an interesting finale rather than Lewis Hamilton being half a lap ahead of, of the next best car. There were other examples, I think, during the season where people were questioning a little bit that they were putting too much emphasis on 
entertainment and the purity of the sport was being impacted. Maybe DRS would be another example. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take an issue with you there when you say um, put, they were pushing for entertainment. They were pushing for racing. So I think that's one thing Massey claimed when in, def, in defense of himself, saying, guys, you wanted me to make sure there was racing as much as possible. And that's what I tried to manufacture. Now, it transpires that maybe he misinterpreted the rules incorrectly. And I think that's you know a fairly safe place to land but yeah I, I think that though it was all in the pursuit of of racing which is entertainment which is entertaining which is why people turn up to watch it bear uh, if i mean i i loved the your use of the word aficionado before and I, i'd like to say it again actually but I, i'm certainly not an aficionado of motorsport as we all know but if um one of the results of these recent changes is to make the teams more even and to make it more competitive how can that not be a good thing i mean that's what sporting organizations all around the world do with salary caps and the like to, to make it uh, more entertaining. How can that, um, you know, hit at the soul of a sport, as you say, how can that be such a bad thing? Look, last season was the best Formula One season for a long time, as Stephen said, and I completely agree with that. But there are people who would say it's somehow against the spirit of the sport, which has always been about engineering excellence and driving excellence and just being the fastest but you can still have that and so the regulation you know the regulations the aerodynamic regulations have changed for this season the engines are basically pretty much locked in for the next couple of years they won't change i mean they're pretty quite technological they're hybrid engines basically uh well, they are hybrid engines but the aerodynamics have changed um fairly significantly in the hope that they'll produce closer racing but you know those engineers i think what people miss is that formula one's a team sport it's it's like a rock band because you only see the lead singer i.e the driver but there's a few hundred, a number of hundred people sitting behind that driver, creating a vehicle that is the the sufficient number of tenths of seconds faster than the, the car behind. So I think there'll always be that innovation, and they're clever enough to know when they frame the rules and regs. They're clever enough to know that that's important. You've got to give the engineers and so forth room to to think and to develop. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I'm I'm not in the camp of saying that they've taken, you know, they've they've jumped the shark at all. I don't think it's anywhere near that, but I think people are just asking questions around is the sport starting to change in a way that may not work for it in the long term. Look, I think it's it's interesting when you talk about the engineering, Paul, and 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 Dave's use of the word aficionado makes me want to say it again too. <laughs> um that if if you go way back there was this image, whether it was right or wrong, I, I mean, it doesn't actually matter. Formula One was where cars were the fastest cars on the planet. You know, Indy might have tried to line them up to be roughly mm. the same, but Formula One was about going fast. Now, with these new aerodynamic rules, I mean, one of the ones that fascinates me is they've they've tried to design the cars so that there's less dirty air in the sort of two or three car lengths behind the car because that was was literally slowing it, making it harder for a car to get get close to the car in front and then pass them. Yep. It's it's a brilliant idea. My main concern is if they slow down the cars too much, do you lose that <laughs> flair? Do you use that magic of that's what Formula One's supposed to be? Mate, I reckon if you go to a Formula One race this year, you are still going to be impressed with how fast these things are going. And they've already, now that we've had one or two test sessions, they're already talking about getting back up to the speed that they were last year uh, during the course of this season uh, sometime. The, the history of the sport is full of regulation changes where they've slowed the cars down by a few seconds because they were going a bit berserk at times. And then, you know, the technology gets better and, and they catch up. So um, I don't see a problem. 
frankly. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with where F1 is. It'll be very interesting to see how the regulations go, the change in regs go this year, whether they will, in fact, have the desired effect of, of creating closer racing because goodness knows they've tried that before and it hasn't really worked. So it'll be fascinating. But look, they are doing something right because for the first time in history, Melbourne has sold out. You cannot buy a ticket for the Melbourne Grand Prix, and that was as of about two months before the event. All the GA it's impressive. has sold out. So, yeah, two years of pent-up um, demand there. So it actually goes ahead. Surely it will. I think it'll, I think it'll go ahead, mate. It's the sporting capital oh, of Australia, shit. of the world. Here we go. Of course it's sold out. He's of just, course it's sold out. He's just bought a house down there, so he's even worse now than what he was previously. In. Uh, anyway, Steve, I'll see you down there for the Grand Prix, mate. Looking forward to it. To the shootout where we cover a few uh, topics in shorter fashion. And, uh, Jono, you've managed to make me talk about golf again. Fire away, mate. This is all yours. Oh, this is, this is. I think this is about the... Uh, didn't we say, actually, what could possibly go wrong when Greg Norman announced he was getting into bed with the Saudis yeah, to set up a rebel golf we, tour? Yeah, we did discuss that, didn't well, we? Well, tell few, us all about what went wrong. A <laughs> few, few things have gone wrong, Richie. So just to backtrack very quickly, Please. there was a proposed Super Golf League um, backed by mountains of cash put up by Saudi Arabia. Um, it's been shrouded in secrecy. Apparently, there are rumours that a whole bunch of players have signed up, but they've all signed non-disclosure agreements, so no one was really admitting to it. Um, the the background to this is there's a push by a number of players to suggest that the PGA wields too much power and that they're not um, enabled to uh, monetize their brand as much as they should and that they, they're locked into the PGA Tour for too many weeks of the year and the PGA Tour is going for, for way too long. So um, a number of players were rumoured to, to sign up. One was uh, Phil Mickelson. One was uh, the Great White Shark. And Dave, uh, Phil Mickelson, I think, was the one who ultimately blew himself up um, with his horrendous quotes in an interview with the well-known golf journalist Alan Shipnuck. Um, I'll let you mention what was Alan said. who? Shipnuck. Wow. Alan Shipnuck. American? That's, that's an American yeah, so yeah. if you've ever heard one. That's awesome. Yeah, and without... Going into the details of it, I guess what he was saying was that he was intentionally dancing with the devil to to drive a better deal for for him and his fellow pros. I don't think he expected that one to be quoted publicly, and it's it's come back to bite him. Is 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 anyone using any of this material for red card, yellow card? Do we need to be careful what we say here to avoid? Uh, no, I'm not. No. But yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. We, we can say what he said. I mean, he, he basically said they killed, um, you know, that U.S. Uh, journalist. Sorry, the uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and have a horrible human record, horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider doing it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. So complete brain explosion from Phil. Um, all of his sponsors have walked. He's announced that he's going to take some time away from the game. And lo and behold, the idea of the Saudi Super League has um, seems to have disappeared for the moment as well. Fancy that. Uh, now, who sells a majority share of themselves? David Beckham does, so it's likely a shrewd move. Bex has sold a majority stake in his brand to brand management company Authentic Brand Group for around 270 mil US dollars, uh, supposedly, under wraps, but that's the estimate. Uh, so this equates to a 55% stake in the unimaginatively named DB Ventures, as in David Beckham, which manages Beckham's endorsement deals. Uh, so ABG will co-own and manage the Soccer Icons Global brand. Never heard of ABG? Well, uh, they own the rights to Muhammad Ali's images and so forth. They work with Sports Illustrated, and they're about to purchase Reebok, apparently, as we go to digits. 
Um, so interesting ploy this, um, Riles. I know you're, uh, you're, you, this is right up your territory. But Mr. Beckham, it's, it's selling. It's, it's not quite selling his soul, but it's it's worse than that. It's selling a bit of himself. I think it's brilliant, and I'm, <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I don't know, I don't know why I'm surprised that you're so surprised and shocked about this. I mean, David Beckham has always, always been a marketing genius, and I think the, you know, the the fact that he's been able to get He's now outsourcing the you know, ongoing, you know, the maintenance of his brand, the development of his brand. He's still got a share, so he's still got a say, but he doesn't have to do any of the work anymore. For, for, for the last couple of decades, he's been doing all the work and cultivating one of the most compelling sporting brands on the planet. Mm. Um, you know, for a guy that really doesn't talk good, <laughs> he uh, has had an amazing uh, brand, uh, bigger since he stopped playing. It's remarkable. I really want to um, see this contract and read the fine print. And what I'm interested in is the hair. <laughs> yeah. How much creative he, license he, he well, has. Well, in selling 55% stake, has he, does he retain autonomy oh. over what his hair mm. looks like? Mm. Or can he be <clears throat> directed? He may have lost autonomy over his hair to Victoria some time ago. I was going to so, say, is, is Victoria a party to the agreement? I mean, mm. Very interesting. Is it a family issue or just is Brand Beckham, Mrs. Beckham as well? Does AVG get, you know, you run a line halfway down his hair and just flick it 5% one direction and AVG gets that uh, proportion and Bex has got free license and the remaining 45%. Yeah, well, that, that could really damage the brand though, couldn't it? Oh, I think that sort of thing's happened before though. He's, he's had hairdos before that look like that's, that's been the true. case. That's true. It's uh, true. Mm-hmm. I submit. But, but he's always been able to pull them off. The man cannot do any wrong. Um, even it'll be uh, ABG won't. Uh, it's a sure thing for ABG. One of the best business deals of the year. Dave, how's DG Ventures going? DG Ventures is going well. I'm, <laughs> I've still got a hundred percent of your but, hair, or? but there are lots of <laughs> lots of interested purchases. So stay tuned. And from the it's not sport, but we like it file. Speed skydiving. So. Get a load of this. So skydiving, very familiar with that, people jumping out of planes and sort of floating belly down as they uh, look at Earth. So first developed in Florida, apparently, about 20 years ago in the very, very late 90s. Speed skydiving has been around for, uh, well, for, for that long, obviously, and it's become something of an international discipline in the early 2000s. Now, for you and I, when we jump out of an airplane, not that I, has anyone done that? Has anyone skydived? No. Never. No, 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 no. Okay. I will if I get a terminal illness. I don't think I could do it unless well, I, I hope, sort of... Yeah. I hope you never do. Rich. Oh, thanks, mate. Um, so you and I, if we were to jump out of an airplane and do that sort of nice floaty, you know, down to the down to the earth, you're doing about 200 k's an hour when maximum velocity... It's pretty quick. ...kicks in. That's, that's fast enough. So last October at the United States Parachute Association Nationals in Arizona, a Kyle Lobpreeze, uh, I'm going to go with, became the fastest athlete in the sport and surely one of the fastest athletes on the planet without using a machine... When he reached an official speed of three hundred and eighteen point seven four miles an hour, so that's four hundred k's an hour. Uh, oh, more, five hundred and thirteen. Oh, yeah, get, you need a new calculator, mate. Is uh, pretty good. It's incredible. Uh, and there's more to come, apparently. So once technology catches up, that's the thing. So the top guys, all they're doing is wearing tight nylon suits to reduce drag, obviously, and they actually tape down their zippers and shoelaces um, because otherwise, at five hundred k's an hour. You get a little shoelace tap, 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 tapping against your skin. <laughs> You're going to get a nice big welt. Yeah, I bet. Ouch. I mean, those guys are crazy. Exactly. Well, I think that's the appeal. Um, and apparently it's all about body control. So you've got to, you've got to v- fall vertically. 
So even a slight little kink in the neck can lead to what they call apparently the wobbles. Yep. Can you imagine getting the you know the wobbles at 500 k's an hour? So your body starts shaking, etc. Um, as someone, I think uh, I think Kyle himself may have been quoted as saying, you end up walking this very fine line between speed and control. Uh, and lastly, the, the the bit I love is this. So they jump from around 13,000 feet, um, can monitored continuously during about a, a window of about 7,400 feet. So in, in, in other words, that the floor, inverted commas, is at 5,600 feet for those who don't have a calculator in front of them. The fastest three-second average during that window is recorded as their speed. Can you imagine how careful you'd have to be decelerating from 500 kilometers an hour? <laughs> And they don't actually have much time. So when they cross through that 5,600 feet mark, a gizmo sends a signal to the to the um, to diver's earpiece. If you were to stay on that world record pace and continue your descent, you would hit terra firma in 12 seconds. Wow. I love it. It's uh, It reminds me of Top Gun and Jester saying, gentlemen, do not proceed below the, the hard deck. deck. <laughs> <laughs> they should use that quote. In their promotional gear. So who wants to go skydiving now, guys? <laughs> It's too fast. <laughs> so you wait. Red Bull will get a hold of that if they haven't already. They probably have actually, and uh, and make a lot more of it than is currently being made. But um, these are the lengths that people go to to um, to, <laughs> to succeed in sport. Good on you, fellas. Well done. And now to red card, yellow card, our favourite part of the show, where we bring back into the spotlight the indiscretions of sporting types. Things that they wish we'd forget about and wouldn't ventilate once again. So uh, around the table we go. Any volunteers discerning? First, Riles, take us away. What do you got, mate? Look, I, I feel like I need to honour uh, that fantastic interview earlier in the show with Tim Harcourt by nominating Roman Abramovich. Mm. He is an absolute, well, the owner of the Chelsea Football Club, for those who don't know. At time of talking. At, good point. Good point. Well, it turns out he's had to move his uh, 430 million pound super yacht. Um, the, the reason being, of course, that the Russian uh, owner, part owner of Everton, uh, Alisher Usmanov, uh, had his seized. So there was a sudden sort of uh, domino effect of, of Russian football owners needing to move their yachts before they got seized in sporting sanctions. Mm. Yeah, they're going to have to love like Oligarchs Anonymous where they could all get together <laughs> and, and share, share stories. Bouncing but around in international to waters. Kill too, yeah. <laughs> Clinging onto the life raft of, you know, with the name of their previously owned $450 million yacht. Yeah, so I think there was a lot of rapid, uh, uh, what's the word for it? Not embarkation, disembarkation. No, I've got the wrong word there. Getting I've the got the wrong nautical term, but uh, there's a lot of rapid departures, which I think is a bit difficult to do with those things. You don't just go, oh, we might shoot off now and fire up and away you go. Um, so, uh, Riles, what sort of card are you dishing out in that circumstance? Well, I, I suppose it's it, I suppose it's a yellow card because he got away, I mm. guess. Mm. Yeah. Fair enough. Gilly, what about yourself? You remember Sepp Blatter, the... the- <sighs> Former of FIFA course. president, like well. surely, how could we forget? Surely, it couldn't get any worse, right? Fine, oh, fine really? upstanding, moral, awesome. Possibly, so, would have liked to have given the World Cup to Russia one day, maybe. Exactly, but his successor, uh, and we should have known from his name, Gianni Infantino, mm. that maybe this wouldn't um, end or start so well. So. Fresh from his crazy and uh, ghoulishly greedy plan for a biennial World Cup, um, he's now playing the philanthropy um, card so beloved of FIFA presidents, and he's 
essentially arguing that this is a good idea because it will give more Africans a chance in life. And at a meeting of the Council of Europe <clears throat> Assembly, I, I don't know what the Council of Europe is, but it sounds it sounds important. Mm, that's the main thing. He suggested that a biennial World Cup could in fact save African migrants from finding death in the sea. Oh, on I, you, Gianni. I think I wow. know what he was trying to say, but it uh, would have been one of those times when it would have been better not to say anything. Um, and I'm suggesting a red card and mm. a four-year ban. Mm, good oh, call. No, Seconded. Like yep. I, I've, I'm sorry. I have, to, I have to object. I have to object. He, he only gets a red card because he's ruining a perfectly good idea, one of the great Rubbish. ideas, which the three of you just don't understand at all. Look, let's, at all. Let, why not have a World Cup every six months? I mean, you know, why stop <laughs> at two years? Look, we're too deep into the funny part of the show, Riles, to have this sensible conversation. Save it for next show. <laughs> John Ho. Thanks, Rochi. Uh, my nomination goes to the New Zealand All Blacks. Oh. Um, so this week we celebrated International Women's Day. Oh, yeah. Um, and someone in the All Blacks social media unit decided to mark the occasion by posting some content. Um, what did they go with, do you think? A celebration of the Black Ferns netball team, Black Ferns sevens team? Uh, not quite. Um, the All Blacks posted pictures of Sevu Reese and Aaron Smith two male rugby stars alongside several women in their lives with the caption, forever grateful to all the women in our lives that allow us to play the game we love. Partners, mothers, daughters, doctors, wow. physios, referees, administrators, and fans appreciate you every day. Now, thanks for being there in the background for me. Indeed. Quite apart wow. from the obviously tone-deaf, tin-eared decision to focus on two male stars on International Women's Day, the All Blacks also happened to choose Sevu Reese, who had admitted to oh, assaulting no. his partner whilst drunk on the street in 2018, oh. and Aaron Smith, who I'm sure we all remember back in 2016, had the unfortunate tryst in an airport oh, bathroom. Goodness gracious me. So suffice to say there was a massive backlash, um, and to give them some minor and probably all too late credit, the All Blacks very soon after released an apology. Mm. What a debacle. Yeah, and unusual for the All Blacks as well. They don't often get things wrong like that. Good call. Good call. That's another red card. We That's are red. bunching red. up the red cards here. According to a report in nine media newspapers, Racing Victoria has given up trying to get into schools to promote the sport to kids, with the CEO of Racing Victoria, Giles Thompson, suggesting, quote-unquote, wokeism among parents as the reason behind schools rejecting racing. And I, I, do stop me if I drop into a HG Nelson voice here because it's really hard not to. I've, I'm <laughs> going to concentrate hard. So apparently Giles has had a little luck in getting the schools to promote, to promote the sport. With about 95% of schools he's approached having knocked them back, uh, knocked back their in initiatives such as free educational incursions in schools. Didn't we just have excursions when we were at school? It's, incursions. Thing. it's an COVID. pandemic thing. COVID really? thing yeah. Okay, anyway. Um, visits from horses or jockeys which is a shame because jockeys are the only athletes truly able to talk to kids at their level, uh, and excursions oh. excursions to racetracks. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the chaos that that would entail? Yeah. I mean, if we thought the Year 9 Commerce and Geography excursion up to Newcastle was bad, can you imagine taking a bunch of kids to the racetrack? Roach, how much trouble you, you would have just I – mean, you would have gotten into so much trouble. He wouldn't have made it through to the end of Year 12. Say, so, Giles, it only takes one parent to object to the headmaster or headmistress that you're encouraging kids to gamble, and that will shut it down. If you think about what puts a school off racing, it's the gambling, it's the breakdown of horses. Horses breaking down in the Melbourne Cup is tragic for us in that environment, and that's how we're perceived. Yes, Giles. 
Doesn't stop there, apparently. I've been royally criticised over years, over the years over the whip debate, and it's a great example of how, on one hand, racing... See the problem with HG voice? Uh, how, on one hand, racing wants to engage with a younger generation and a younger demographic, when it's that demographic, the 12-year-old, who doesn't understand why a horse has to be... That's my bold. Has to be whipped in a race. Who doesn't understand that the whip is padded and doesn't hurt. So if it doesn't hurt, why do you need a whip? But anyhow, so as you can tell, uh, Giles is, is way off beam for mine. And look, the sting in the tail, mm. no pun intended there, so he said, Giles said, hey, and are we aware of the challenges around equine welfare, both in reality and perception? Absolutely we are. Isn't that the very definition, or at least the original meaning, of the word woke? Being awake to the zeitgeist, not necessarily wow. doing anything about it. Giles. Giles. Yellow card. Doesn't qualify for red. There's too many excellent uh, nominations that precede that one. Oh, it's pretty close to a red. Really? I think, yeah. yeah. Just completely not in touch. Doesn't have a comms department there, do they? Or <laughs> anyone that he could run that past before? Look, racing CEOs tend to be their own comms department. You mm. know, just look at Peter Vlandis in New South Wales, for example. Yeah. Great effort. So there you go. With the conclusion of Red Card, Yellow Card, that brings us to the end of For and Against for another exciting episode. Goodbye to you, Stephen Riley. Goodbye to you all, gentlemen. Have a great uh, night, month, day. Well, it depends when you're listening, I suppose. That's Good exactly to see right. You. Yeah, we've only been doing this for years and years and years. We should avoid these sort of time-locating comments. Uh, Jono, goodbye to you. See you, Richie. See you next time. See you, Gilly. Hope you can join us next show. Such such heat in the studio tonight. Yeah, literal and metaphorical. Exactly, Actually, it's, yeah. it's, it's warming up here. We've been here long enough. Too much hot air. It's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. Thanks for your company. Look forward to speaking to you next time on For and Against. Bye for now.